0: Hello, welcome to Business Buzz. I'm your host, Harold Littlejohn. Harold Littlejohn, CPA of Mangrove, a- Mangrove Avenue fame. Sorry about that. I just sat down. I'm having a very busy day, but always a nice chance to talk to you and try to educate you. i am got a lot of interesting stories today, a lot of interesting articles. We're going to talk, oh, we're going to talk stocks. We're going to talk cars. We're going to talk tax. We're going to talk wages. We're going to talk debts. We're going to talk the upcoming elections a little bit, how it relates to the tax, new tax law. And if we get to it, I'm going to also talk to you about some other interesting topics. So it's going to be a real fun uh, show today. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are. It's another great February day in Chico always pleasant, and the weather's been fairly cooperative, so it's been pretty nice. Well, I was going to start, I try to start out with a local story, because this is, since this is business buzz, and I'm a local CPA here in town, I've said before, there's lots of good tax professionals. It definitely pays to talk with one. I'm one of them. There's a lot of them. I wouldn't go it alone if you have anything complicated. There's so many twists and turns with tax choices and opportunities, I just hate to see anybody try to go it alone when they could be hiring a professional for not always that high of a fee. As far as fee setting, it's, it's really good. I just talked to a new client today, and this person you know, asked me what the price range would be to get the tax done because she had never had taxes needed to be done before by a professional, but now she's got a few more complicated issues. And, you know, it's so easy. So just pick up the phone, call some tax people, tell them a little bit about what your situation is, and find out how much it'll cost. It might not be as expensive as you think. I have seen quite a few new clients this year, and i got to admit, when they do their own tax, there's some real botched-up taxes I've seen. Nothing personal against them, of course. It's a complicated subject. If you don't know it, you're not going to know how to do it. I've been doing this for over 30 years on a pretty much a daily basis. So it comes naturally to me. You might be a contractor who builds houses. I wouldn't have the slightest idea how to put up a wall, but you know how to do it. And it goes for the saying that you've got to hire a professional, just like the people need to hire you. I need to, I need to be hired. And there's very, there's some people that brought in their self-prepared taxes from the year before And as I was helping them figure out 2017, it's like, oh, you have, I don't know, I don't remember exactly, it was a small refund or they owed money, but last year they'd gotten all this money back. So I dug into their paper copy or their PDF, I can't remember if it was on my computer, but they had gotten me a copy of 2016. And lo and behold, I looked at 2016, the large $12,000 mileage deduction had been taken in two different places, on two different pages. If the IRS does look at that tax return, they're going to see that there's an obvious duplication of a very large deduction, and it could very easily turn into a, an exam where they would say, hey, show us this 24000 of miles, and when you can only show them the 12000 of miles, they will adjust, they will add the tax, They will definitely add interest. Interest is pretty much mandatory because you had the use of the money. But they may or may not add penalties depending on, number one, the dollar amount of the extra tax, and number two, whether it looks like you did it on purpose or whether it was just an inadvertent overlooked error. So there's lots of factors that go into this stuff, but I really cringe sometimes when I see what people actually send in when they self-prepare their taxes and they really shouldn't have. A general rule of thumb for me is if you've got anything involving large employee business expenses or a Schedule C where you're self-employed or a Schedule E where you own rentals or if you have moving expenses, moving to a new job location, those are just four examples of things where it's likely that the tax savings or at least the being correct in your tax prep and avoiding a future audit, it's likely that any one of those four pages, a professional's help could save you as much tax as you'll end up paying in a fee over and above the software you have to buy. I'm pretty sure you won't get free e-filing if your tax return involves a business or a rental I believe that the free e-filing you can do through the IRS for federal and through the Franchise Tax Board for California is for a easy form where all you have is wages and maybe a little bit of other income like interest income. I don't believe you can file for free if it gets complicated. That's just what I think. I'm not positive about that, but just based on what I've heard clients or new clients tell me about their Finding free filing quest. That I believe is the case. We will get back to the subject of the new tax law a little later today. For now, I want to start out like I usually do, giving you a little information about local business with what I find. I deal with local business people, but I like to look for articles that are local oriented, and I usually find them in the Chico ER because they have a business section. If you read the Chico ER regularly, you may have seen this already. I looked it up, and I thought it was interesting. I'll preface this with, if you've been listening to my show in the past, you know that I'm not a huge fan of, e, uh, I can't remember his first name, Musk. Elon Musk. He is the founder of Tesla. He's founder of SpaceX. He shoots rockets into the air that don't always go anywhere. And my point with Elon Musk is that anybody's welcome to correct me if I'm wrong, because I love to learn and I love to be corrected. I don't think I'm wrong. I don't think any of his businesses have ever turned a profit. That's just my initial feeling uh, based on all the reading that I have done. But the interesting article that came up in the Chico ER recently is called Tesla Liking Chico More. When I first saw that, I thought, wow, does that mean they're going to build a plant in Chico and we're going to add 50,000 jobs? But no, that wasn't the case. What it was was they are looking for a place to put what's called a supercharging station. Now, I'm assuming that that means, because the article does mention that there's already chargers located at Sierra Nevada and a couple other places here in town, I'm guessing that a supercharging station based on this article, is a station where you can completely recharge your Tesla battery engine in 45 minutes. That's what I seem to have read here. So that's actually a good thing. I'm guessing that they probably, they would look at a map of the state, they would look at a map of the traffic that goes through Highway 99, and then they would say, well, if we put it in Corning, we're on I-5, but we've already got one. I'm just making this up. I have no idea. Don't hold me to this if you're in need of a charge. Maybe they'll say, well, we already have one near Red Bluff, so we don't want to put one in Corning, but we don't have one on 99 between Red Bluff and Sacramento, so let's put one in Chico. That's what I'm guessing. That sounds like a good idea for business. It must mean that I'm assuming that kind of means they figure, well, Chico's not a dying area. It's a growing area. That would be good. Another part of this article actually mentions, as a side note, that Oxford Suites is getting the permit for expanding into a four-story, 112 additional unit addition onto their hotel. That, to me, is good news. Anytime the city needs a new hotel, or an addition to an existing hotel, that tells me that business must be popping up, because a lot of the hotel business really is based on business travel. If you think about all the people you know and when they travel and if they're visiting relatives, how many of them rent a hotel and how many of them stay with relatives? And based on my discussion with a lot of clients, I'm almost thinking it's around 50-50. I don't think personal guest tourist type travel is what Chico hotels are filling up with. I think it's business people. So in my opinion, when I see a hotel expansion going on in Chico, to me that's good news and it probably indicates that Chico business life is doing well and things are perking up and picking up. That would seem to be sort of the indication of that type of addition for a hotel. Now, my next topic will expand out a little bit and I've mentioned this before, and it's again, this is all in the interest. It's not in the interest of being negative. It's in the interest of being positive and giving you a positive way to learn about your money, protect your retirement, protect your investments, and not get suckered into missing out on uh, saving your money if and when the next market crash occurs. A lot of people are not really hedged against the market crash. I did talk to a client today, and they had mentioned that they had moved a lot of their retirement money out of the stock market and into cash, in other words, safety, where it's not going to go up a lot, but it won't go down a lot. And they did that in the end of 2016. So essentially, they were just pointing out the fact that they missed this whole big run-up since the Trump election. I'd like to also mention that if anybody remembers the night of the Trump election, the stock market plummeted and gold and silver spiked. That was the initial real reaction to the surprise Trump victory. Within, I think, four or five hours of that surprise victory, the stock market completely reversed and headed upward and really never looked back for any real amount. And gold and silver basically headed south and didn't look back since then for any amount either. All that tells me relates to the article I'm going to read you in a minute here. It's not a long article, but it's a good educational thing. And I'm all about education. We're coming up on the first break in a couple minutes, but I'm going to start this article right now. It's from my favorite news site as far as financial news and some regular news called Zero Hedge dot com. The title of this article is Paul Craig Roberts, who I believe is a former Reagan administration bigwig, exposes the plunge protection team's fraud. And I've mentioned the plunge protection team before. I'm just going to read some of this and then we'll kind of discuss why it matters. And this is talking about after the big downturn in stocks at the uh, earlier in the month of February here. After the extraordinary sudden loss in equity values, the last two days brought gains back to the stock indices. In my opinion, this is what happened. The plunge protection team, as they have done on previously, previous equity market drops, or the Federal Reserve operating for the working group on financial markets, sent a purchase order per S&P futures to the trading floor. The hedge funds seeing the incoming bid front-ran the bid by stepping in and buying S&P futures. This pushed the market back up, ended the correction, and prevented financial panic. Well, after the break that's coming up, I'm going to kind of go into that a little bit, but if you realize what just happened in what I just said, the rebound in the stock market a couple weeks ago or a week and a half ago is actually an artificially created rebound. It looks like a rebound in faith, a rebound in people like you and me purchasing stocks again after a big correction. But when you understand how this works, it's not natural, it's not normal, it should not be that way, but it is that way. And this article explains the Plunge Protection Team was created in 1987, approaching the end of the Reagan administration, in order to prevent a market correction from costing George H.W. Bush the presidential election as Reagan's successor. Now, we can stop there for a minute. They didn't do this rule and put this team in that saves the stock market to help you and I. Just like this article mentions, this was done in order to make sure the incoming president didn't have a hiccup in his voting uh, election situation. This article goes on to say the Republican establishment was desperate to reestablish its control over the party. The Republican establishment, convinced by Wall Street that the Reagan tax cut would result in high inflation, found themselves instead confronted with a long economic expansion. In those days, that meant that the expansion could be nearing its end and a stock market correction could deny the presidency to George H.W. Bush. To prevent any such correction the U.S. Treasury and Federal Reserve created a working group to intervene in the stock market in order to support values. Whenever the market starts to drop, the team purchases S&P futures, which halts the market decline. We have witnessed this on several occasions, and most likely again this week. Pearl Littlejohn CPA here. I'll be right back with you after the break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. Rick Box, founder of Unconventional Business Network, formerly Integrity Resource Center, with today's Integrity Moment. A friend of mine once told me that he believed that the biggest return on an activity usually comes from the last 5% of effort. Being diligent to the end produces a great reward. It's like digging a well. You dig and dig until you want to give up. But if you diligently continue, you eventually hit the spring of water and your work becomes worthwhile. Hebrews 6.11 teaches, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We can get so weary working on a new project or product that we want to stop before our project's fully complete. God desires us to persevere diligently to the end to reap the greatest reward. To learn more about Unconventional Business Network and doing business God's way, visit unconventionalbusiness.org. That's unconventionalbusiness.org. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Scott Ulrich. I'm Ben Taney. I'm Trisha Coder. And I'm Matt Four. This is Jessica Wilkerson, one of your hosts of Chico Now. A half hour designed for the community and brought to you by the community. Each day, one of our hosts will join with people from organizations throughout the greater Chico area. We want to let you know what's happening in Chico Now. So join us at 1230 30, Monday through Friday, here on KKXX or Chico Now. The of my life is so hard. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn CPA here. I was just in the middle of discussing this article from Paul Craig Roberts about the Plunge Protection Team. It's more formal name is the Working Group on Markets. And I'm just going to continue a little bit on this. Uh, Stay with me. It's not that long, but it's very important. He says, we have witnessed this on several occasions and most likely again this week. He's referring to the pickup in the stock market after the big drop. Pundits who speak about, quote, market forces, unquote, are speaking about something that doesn't exist. Market forces are the interventions that support existing values with money infusions. How long can the fraudulent valuation of equities continue? My sometimes co-author Dave Kranzler and I think it can continue until the dollar as reserve currency comes under attack. Neither of us believed that the fraud could be perpetrated this long. The two other world powers, Russia and China, are moving away from the U.S. dollar, but the consequence for the dollar could still be in the future. In the meantime, liquidity supplied by central banks and the interventions of the plunge protection team could send equity prices higher. So the reason I read that article is that you have to realize that there is no real what they call price discovery. In other words, in the In the picture of the real world, the reason we have markets, the reasons we have exchanges, the reasons we have commodity exchanges, whatever, the reason we have those is what's called price discovery. It enables a large group of buyers and sellers to come together somewhere, and that place, whether it be the New York Stock Exchange or the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or the New York Metals Exchange, Those places are the places where price discovery is done. Between a million buyers and a million sellers, let's just use the example of pork bellies, which I believe is where bacon comes from. If you go to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and you look at the pit that trades pork bellies, if you have thousands of buyers and thousands of sellers uh, with an open outcry bid for buying and selling, that is what makes price discovery. That's what tells you what is a pound of pork bellies worth. The problem is when we have things like this plunge protection team coming in with printed, fake, endless money that they can print because they run the printing presses, and they come and stop a market decline with printed money, buying S&P futures, and then the computerized algorithm hedge funds See that purchase coming in and they buy up to augment that, that is what makes a market correction these days. It's not a price discovery. Well, to be honest, it kind of is in a way, but it's an artificial price that's being discovered. It's a price that's desired by the people in charge who print the money. I'll ask you, do you really want to have your savings and wealth in that kind of place? Personally, I don't, and I never have. I've been very conservative. I have not shared in the big run-up, but at least I haven't suffered in the 40% decline of 2008, uh, the 50% decline of 2000, and the upcoming decline, of which I can't tell you the exact percentage. But the last time, the S&P 500 in 2009 stopped at the number 666. So- If another big one comes, I'm going to bet on 666, and I'll probably buy right when it hits 666, knowing the people who control this thing. So the reason why that article is important is because the next article I wanted to share with you is very, it's almost comical when you hear the title. So this is the New York Stock Exchange most iconic stockbroker admits He's, quote, never owned a share of stock in my life. And it shows this picture of this old gray-haired guy. He almost looks like a, like a university professor. He's got the bald head with the white hair, uh, almost like an Einstein-looking guy with glasses on. And uh, the, art- the article's short. I'll just read you a little bit. The 60-year-old trader is perhaps the most iconic face of the New York Stock Exchange and the U.S. stock markets, as the trader's Einsteiny look can be relied upon as a real-time indicator of sentiment—be it anguish, anticipation, desperation, or triumph—his name's Tuckman, T-U-C-H-M-A-N. C-U-T-U-C-H-M-A-N. It is was at, is without doubt the most photographed person at the New York Stock Exchange, and I'll abbreviate that with NYSE. The floor of NYSE is the greatest office on earth. This is quoted by him. It has energy, people. These are hallowed floors. It's 120 years old, and every president, every head of state, celebrities have walked this floor. What goes on on this floor will affect world finance on a daily basis, and I'm in the middle of it. I love that. And once my face becomes what it's become, I love that part of it too. What does Tuckman do? I am the eyes and ears and the conduit for trading and point of sale of buying and selling stocks for customers. It's very simple. If grandma in Kentucky wants to buy 100 shares of XYZ, she calls a broker at Charles Schwab and says, I want to buy 100 shares of XYZ. The broker generates the order. It gets sent to a machine on the floor of the NYSE. That machine will route the order to me as a broker into my handheld, which I then route to the market maker and the order enters into the public market. I don't have to talk to a person. Electronic markets are all fine and good to a point. What makes what I do so powerful and meaningful and still so important is the human factor on the floor of the stock exchange. We have brokers, human beings, market makers, the human safety net set in place to protect against unruly volatility, artificial intelligence. People see us here and they know a human being is watching over their money and their market. That's what makes a difference. That's why I'm still here. However, a seemingly innocent question a little later in the Washington Post interview raised a few eyelids. Quote, do you own stock? Answer, I have never owned a share of stock in my life. I do not eat my own cooking. Funny thing about money, if I started to worry about my own profit and loss, I would be less concentrated on my customers' well-being. Also, I have two children in college, so I don't have any money to buy stocks. The Washington Post reporter seems truly stunned and asks in disbelief, you must have some investments. Answer, I invest in my family and my kids. My kids will graduate college without any debt. That is my investment. Welcome to real, and this the article, says welcome to real world America and where the real world wealth effect does not trickle down. So anyway, I just thought that was really interesting because this guy who's been working the New York Stock Exchange floor for 60, 60 years old, I guess, he's probably been doing it for 40 years, has never bought a share of stock in his life. I thought that was pretty interesting. I hope you, I hope you enjoyed that too. Moving on, since we're talking about business, business includes workers. If you're, a, if you're an employee... You're in business also. You just happen to be paid via a paycheck instead of directly from uh, customers. But your customer, the one you're selling your services to, is your employer. So that's business just as well as anybody else. The article I've got here is called How the Fed's Inflation Policies Crucify Workers. And the, the gist of this article is based on Every month, pundits comment on average wages. But median wages best explain how the Fed's policies crucify workers. So what this article is saying is that if you listen to the headlines and CNBC and Fox and CNN, all you hear is uh, the average wages are going up. Here's the problem. The average, they don't tell you what kind of average the average they're usually talking about when they want to make things look rosy is the mean. The mean is the one that you think of as the true average. The mean is you add up all the scores and divide by the number of scores, and your answer is the mean. So I'll give you a quick example. If you have three scores, one is 10, one is 20, and one is 30, in order to find the mean you, I'm going to use a different example. You have one is 10, one is 20, and one is 60. I'll be right back after the break for this wonderful math puzzle that I'm going to introduce you to. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. See you in a minute. Open calendar. What's my schedule looking like? Next Thursday, you will be caught in an emergency flash flood between Park and First Street. What? No. No, that, that doesn't work. I'm, I'm busy then. Decline. De- decline. Floods don't exactly work around your schedule. Disasters don't plan ahead. But you can. It starts with talking to your loved ones about making an emergency plan. So don't wait. Communicate. Get started today at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. My name is Lola Silvestri, and I'm going to be 95 this year. I was very independent. I fell, and I had to have Meals on Wheels. America, let's do lunch. One in six seniors faces the threat of hunger, and millions more live in isolation. Drop off a hot meal and say a quick hello. Volunteer for Meals on Wheels by donating your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm discussing the crazy math that the mainstream media uses to tell you things are looking good. When they say the average wages go up, I'm trying to explain this, and here's the way I'm explaining it to you. Let's say you have three guys, two are basic guys that got a, one guy got a $10 raise, one guy got a $20 raise, but the guy working at J.P. Morgan got a $60 raise. What I want to tell you is that when they say average wages, they don't mention what kind of average, and they use what's called the mean. In our case here, we have three guys with a total of 10, 20, and 60. That's 90. If you divide that by the number of of things we just talked about, which is three, the average wage increase in this example, if you use the mean like they do on television, is 30. Here's the problem what's really a better, what's, I mean, they're, they're different and neither one is perfect, but which average would be better? The mean, which I just described, or the average called the median. What the median does is it does this. It tells you the number out of a series of numbers of how many are below it and how many are above it. And the median is the one in the middle of that group of numbers. Now, if we take our three guys, one guy got a $10 raise, one guy got a $20 raise, and one guy got a $60 raise, that's a total of 90. And remember, the mean was 90 divided by 3. That was 30. The median raise in this situation is only 20 because 20 is the example in the sample where there's the same number of people below it as above it. So, what I'm trying to say is that the median is probably the best way when you're talking about a nation of 300 million people, of which I'm guessing 150 million are employed, because I do know that 90 million stopped looking in the last time I read about it. You probably want to look at the median and not the mean. And so, the, the bottom line of this article is that the m- average wage is going up. Just means that the mean average wage is going up. In other words, if a hundred people at a factory get a one dollar an hour raise, but the president of the factory gets a50 million dollar bonus, the mean of those of that increased income come is going to be you know like a hundred thousand bucks. That would not be an accurate reflection of the true increase in the wages. Because if you took the median, you would obviously have an equal amount above and below $1 would be the $1 guy. One of those guys would end up being the median. What I'm trying to say is you can't believe these statistics you hear. They're totally skewed to make it sound like the economy is doing well when it may not be doing as well as they say. One of the main things is, is that why would they want to keep telling you the economy is doing well? Well, one what reason they might want to keep telling you that is to keep you from selling your stocks. When I mentioned the fact that this cheap money and the zero interest that we've had for 10 years has basically made the stock market go up in a total bubble, and it really is the top 1% that's making all the money right now, I would honestly have to say that they have the mainstream media and the big corps and all the people running the money and printing, they do have an interest in you thinking that everything's fine. And if you notice, when they do, when the rug does come out and uh, they pull the plug, it's usually the regular guy who gets caught, but there are some people who probably got out before. So I'm just trying to warn you that all is not, what they say it is, and you can't always believe all that. Now, related to that is another article that I wanted to share part of. It's called, This is Where the Next U.S. Debt Crisis is Hiding. And I'll just start off and introduce it this way. As the Federal Reserve reported most recently two weeks ago, U.S. consumer non-mortgage debt has never been higher. As of December 31, 2017, U.S. households had a record $1 trillion of credit card loans, a record $1.3 trillion of auto loans, and a record $1.5 trillion of student loans. Those are the three big categories here that is non-mortgage debt. Among these, credit cards and auto loans in particular have been experiencing accelerated delinquencies. As a result, finance companies and banks have been increasing bad debt provisioning to build balance sheet reserves due to expectations of rising defaults. The chart below illustrates the highest reported net charge-off rate in years. So the net charge-off rate is back up over the rates back in 2014 and all the way through then and now. The point of this is, if the economy is really, really doing well, why is the charge-off rate of credit card debt going up? And this article has a lot of, um, good charts. It shows actually the good one shows the charge off rates from 1985 to now. And the little blip now that's heading upwards is just a minor portion of the large chart, but the giant blip and the giant peak of charge offs was at late Oh nine, early 2010. You all, everybody remembers those wonderful years when the housing market collapsed, they had to bail out lehman brothers collapsed they bailed out all the banks we printed 12 trillion dollars and sent it to european banks so that the rich guys didn't lose all their money that's that was 09 what this is saying is that when you look at the statistics behind the headlines that they'll read you on the you know mainstream news like i've talked about it's not necessarily a super rosy economy right now, and you've got to be careful with how you're thinking. You can't go along thinking everything's fine and not protect yourself. I just consider my main business to be the, the voice that tells you, wait, think about it, and make sure you're not listening to only one side of the story, because the one side of the story you hear all the time is, everything's fine, leave your money right where it is, don't change anything. Don't take your money out of the bank. Don't And definitely don't buy Bitcoin, for heaven's sake. Now, keep in mind, I'm not a financial advisor. And also, anything I tell you about investments, I'm just sharing with you my opinion. You need to do your own diligence. And if I mention tax-type things and tax advice, I'm just telling you what I believe as a tax preparer and an individual, you need to contact a professional. Don't rely on what I'm telling you. And especially with a brand new tax law, they happen every 30 years. Uh, I may not have read every line of the new tax law and had it all memorized by now, which is absolutely true. It's pretty large. It's got a lot of little twists and turns. I'm learning a lot as we go. It's only February. I don't feel like it's good to rush into anything, but I'm learning as I go with a lot of new tax law. And the, the basics and the gist of it, I've definitely got down. There are a few fine-tuned little details that I'm still in the process of learning and looking up, and I'm going to be attending some seminars to learn even more. What I'm trying to say is you have to talk to a professional. Don't rely on me or anybody else to just tell you what to do. Your situation is unique. Uh, Not everybody has the same situation. Now, back to the subject which I've been on lately because with tax season underway, I'm seeing it every day. It's the new tax law. It mainly affects 2018. The 2017 that we're working on right now has most of the same old law. 2018 is the year that we're in now, and that's the year that has all these new tax laws going into effect. My concern or my my interest in this right now, and the reason I mentioned earlier about the midterm elections coming up in the fall, everything I'm seeing with all of my clients is basically a tax savings for virtually everyone. There are a few special cases who are not getting tax savings. There's a couple cases that are actually getting tax increases just due to bad luck from their particular situation with a particular type of tax reform in this new tax law. But those are very few and far between. I would say out of probably... I've probably finished 70 or 80 taxes right now. I really, I can't tell you exactly the number. But out of a group of taxes that I have completed so far, I would say 95% of those are paying less tax next year if their income stays the same than they paid in 2017. I'm not going to get political in this discussion of the tax law because this is not a partisan thing. No matter what occupation my clients are in, whether they're self-employed, whether they're wage earners, whether they're teachers, everybody, virtually everyone, is getting lower taxes next year. Now, again, I will repeat again that if the argument of the trillion and a half dollars over 10 years of deficit increase through this tax law is a problem, I just always want to point you again to the article, University of Michigan, $21 That much has been stolen uh, in a 15-year period between 99 and 2014 from only two large federal institutions. I encourage you to look that article up. That's why I don't really care about a trillion and a half being added to the deficit when I see 95 or more percent of my clients saving tax. And like I say, it's not a political thing it's a tax, it's a numbers thing. So the interesting thing is, what kind of effect is that having on voters? I'm going to be coming up on another break here in a minute, but I want to pose the question, if we have a very important midterm election coming up, could a anti-Trump voter become more, less of an anti-Trump person if his accountant tells him that next year he's getting $3,000 more to spend on something that he's been wanting, but he could not squeeze that extra 3000 out of anywhere due to his, like we talked about before, credit card debt, all that. Break's coming up. I'll be right back in a minute. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. The Pacific Justice Institute, this is The Legal Edge, defending your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. Here's Brad Dickis. The U.S. Senate failed to pass Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act by a vote of 51 to 46. Now this act would have made abortion on demand illegal after five months of development, but it failed along party lines except for five exceptions. Three Democratic senators supported the bill And two Republican senators refused to support the bill at a time when a majority of Americans have recognized that dismemberment of a baby in the womb is just plain wrong. With many Senate seats up for grabs this November, please pray more humane pro-life senators are elected. The Pacific Justice Institute provides legal representation to individuals without charge. Learn more at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Hi, this is Rick McConnell with the Disciple Tip. The most overused phrase in our society is, I don't have time. The worst thing is, we really believe it. So, how do you free up your time? Well, stop believing that you just don't have enough time. In most cases, we have just chosen to do too much. Go to God and ask Him what His priorities are for your life. He will answer, and you'll be surprised at how many things are on your plate that God never wanted there in the first place. A Disciple Tip. You are locked into live radio, KKXX, AM, and FM. Hello, Northern California, Harold Littlejohn CPA here. What a nice February day. It's so nice to be out of the office for a little break and talking to you. So my topic was, what if all of these people who are, has anybody heard of the expression voting with your pocketbook? If you put money in people's pocket, might that make them more inclined to vote for you or less inclined to vote for someone else? I'm not certain, but there's a poll here that I'm reading about, and here's the the gist of this poll. Between the December, the support from Democrats, oh no, I'm sorry. Overall, 51% of Americans approve the tax law now, while 46% disapprove. The approval was 37% in December. Now, here's the interesting thing. Democrats that are polled in December, only 8% approve of the tax law in December. Now that the tax law is actually getting looked at and worked on and people are seeing actual tax reduction, it's 19% of Democrats polled are in favor. And of course, Republicans have gone from 80 to 89%. And like I say, the overall was 37 to 51% approve. And the ones that disapprove have gone down in all categories, Republicans and Democrats. What my point of this article is, is this. If the midterm elections were neck and neck right now or a couple months ago, what happens if a few Democrats decide that they really like the tax cut and like don't go out and vote or don't vote against Trump? I'm just saying... This is kind of interesting as far as this upcoming election. I am—I uh, really do feel in my heart of hearts that this whole Trump thing is very overblown, and it's a lot of, in my opinion, it's kind of still a lot of hype. But I do feel that the one thing he has accomplished in a big plan that everybody's seen and knows about is this tax cut plan, and in my opinion— it's a good thing when local, and I'm talking about the local Chico economy, when I see that almost everybody I'm sitting down with is getting somewhere between 1000 to $3,000 of extra spendable money this year versus last year, to me, that's just got to be good. And I think it just seems like it's going to be helpful. I'm not positive. I can't predict the future, but it just seems like a good thing when people who work hard and are trying to save some money are a- actually able to get more money in their pocket due to this new tax law. So I'm kind of excited. What's really interesting to me in the tax law, and I looked it up yesterday, I don't have it right in front of me, the tax brackets, the 22% bracket goes way up into the hundreds of, th- uh, over $100,000 of taxable income. That's a pretty low bracket. It used to be 25. Started at seventy-five thousand, and now the all the way from seventy-five thousand, I believe, to about a hundred and thirty or forty of taxable income, which translates to about a hundred and sixty of total income. People with a uh, married couples with a hundred and sixty of total income, based on these brackets, never exceeds a twenty-two percent federal tax. That's a pretty good tax cut. Because in the old days, they would have been way in the 25% by then. And the lower bracket was 15 in the old law. Now it's 12. That's a 20% decrease in a bracket for a lot of people. I will have to say, though, don't assume you're getting a tax cut until you've talked to a professional or you've done some good due diligence of your own. There's lots of other factors that come into play. The people who have not had as big of a tax break as others are people without children. The reason is the exemptions are going away, which is $4,000 per person. So that's an $8,000 deduction loss for a married couple with no children. Now, a couple with two children, they lose four exemptions. That's a $16,000 deduction loss. But... To make up for that, if their children are under age 17, the new child credit is $2,000 per child, so that family would get $4,000 in place of an $8,000 loss. It's kind of complicated. That's why you need to talk to a professional. The bottom line is some people are getting tax cuts in the thousands of dollars. I'm not saying whether it's good or bad to reward people for having more small children, but... That's the way it's working out in this tax law, and some of my clients are getting major tax savings due to that feature. A couple other things I want to go over today before the end of the show here. One of the more common problems, questions, things that come up for my clients has to do with real estate and the taxation of real estate when you sell a property. So I'm going to just quickly go over some of the highlights of that. And I want to educate you so that you realize that, hey, I'm that type of person. I need a professional to help me with this. I need to plan how this is going to go because I don't want a big surprise. This is a topic where some people get a big surprise, and it's usually a surprise to the negative side. It's a surprise un- It's an unhappy surprise instead of a happy surprise. And I've had two clients just in the last few days with the same issue. Here's the way it goes. Now, remember now, my clients, they were prepared for this unhappiness because they came to me before they did a property sale and we sat and looked at it and I told them, if you sell it for this, this is what'll happen. Now, here's what's going on. The real estate market has recovered well enough to where people who just a couple of years ago thought they were still going to be underwater and they couldn't dump an old rental that they bought at the wrong time like in 2006, just a couple years ago, the prices weren't high enough for them to sell and get out of it. But since this thing has run up lately, they're actually liquidating for a profit. And it's, that's the good news. Here's the bad news. If the property you're selling is your residence, and if you qualify as a principal residence, again, I want to remind you, don't take my word for this. This is not tax advice over the air. In order to get tax advice from me, You have to call me and sit down and we have to pencil this out on paper. But what I'm telling you is the general rule. If you sell your residence, you get a $250,000 gain tax-free if you're single and a $500,000 tax gain if you're married. Now there's twists and turns and catches to that, but that's the general rule that you're going to be dealing with if you're selling your residence. If you're selling a rental property, here's the way it works. You have to calculate your purchase price of that rental minus the depreciation you've taken while it's been a rental that has offset your rental income. So, for instance, if you have a house that you moved out of and turned into a rental and you've been taking in 1000 a month rent, well, you haven't been paying tax on that full $12,000 a year of rent. You've been deducting things like mortgage interest, property tax, insurance, repairs, and if you're doing it correctly, depreciation of the building that you're renting. Here's the, pro- here's the rub on this thing when you sell. Let's just say you paid $275 for this house and now you're selling it for $275. So you call me and you say, Well, I'm, I bought it for $275, I'm selling it for $275. I don't have a gain, right? Harold? And Harold says back to you, that would be incorrect. Your original purchase price was $275, but you've rented it out for 10 years and you have depreciated, and I'll just throw out a number $75,000 of depreciation against that $120,000 of rent you've taken in. You haven't paid a lot of tax during these 10 years of rental because the rental income of $12,000 minus all of your rental expenses really hasn't netted you much of a gain. But here's the catch. That $75,000 of depreciation that you've gotten the benefit of over the last 10 years now has to adjust your cost basis of your property down to what's called the adjusted basis of the house. And I'm keeping this as simple as I can. This is how complicated this stuff is. But if you could just follow along with some of the basics I'm telling you, your adjusted basis in this house is the 275 you paid minus the 75,000 of depreciation that you've used over the last 10 years as in the rental period. Now when you turn around and sell that house for 275, your tax gain is $75,000. It's the selling price minus the adjusted basis which is only 200. What I'm trying to say is that this is exactly the scenario that happens very often. But if the client of mine is smart enough to call me before they go to sell this house, I will tell them how this works. I will let, we will sit down and we will run numbers and I will tell them if you sell this house for 275, you will have X number of dollars of tax. And let's just call it, um, Oh, off the top of my head on that kind of numbers, I'll call it uh, $22,000 of tax. Here's what ends up happening. If they have a mortgage of two forty, dollars they thought they were getting $35,000 out of this deal. Two seventy-five dollars sale, they owe two they'll get thirty-five. dollars Well, I have to be the person who tells them, no, you'll get thirteen dollars because of the thirty-five dollars left out of this deal after you pay the mortgage off, you owe the IRS and the state of California $22,000 of tax. That's the scenario when you sell a rental property that you've used depreciation to help you the last 10 years. Now it comes back to bite you. Now, it doesn't bite you in full because the rate of tax you pay on a recapture is not as high as the rate you probably deducted it against, but it could be, so... That is the rub when you sell rental property. In a future show, I will discuss with you the ways that the law allows to enable you and your family to theoretically never pay that capital gains tax on the sale of real estate. Whoa, how's that for a teaser? I actually sit down with clients quite often and I explain to them that even if they have let's say one rental property and two residences that they share a home and a second home, there are tax laws that are on the books under the current law and the new 2018 law where they could theoretically end up never paying tax on the gains on those properties. Now I'm just going to make you listen to upcoming shows in order to find out my answer or call me, 895-3353. I'm always available for a free initial consultation. This time of year, that'll probably be over the phone. I have constant appointments and work time where I don't have time to make uh, sit-downs with free consultations, but I do have free phone consultations. And if you're able to wait till after April 15th, then I would definitely have free sit-down consultations. I'm at 1208 Mangrove. And I've been there for years and years. I'm a good source of a second opinion. I've said before, there's lots of great tax professionals in Chico. I'm one of them. But you need to hire a tax professional to try to save yourself some tax. Don't go in blindly to any large purchase, any sale. Don't do it without at least talking. And like I say, with a free consultation with me, At least talk to a professional to give you an idea of the things you need to look out for. That's the end of my business monetary money section of the show because we are coming up on that final break. I wanted to share with you one great definition. I've been listening a lot to my Power of Now CD collection written by Eckhart Tolle, and I wanted to just share with you A definition that came up in one of the chapters I was listening to on my uh, CD lately and it was a definition of forgiveness and his definition of forgiveness in part of this course is accepting what is in other words there's another guy named I believe it's a guy named Krishnamurti who's a pretty good guy to listen to too And one of his things that he says when somebody asked his secret to happiness, I'll leave you with this. He said, I don't mind what happens. So just remember that forgiveness is acceptance of what is. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Thanks for listening to Business Buzz. I'll be talking to you soon on another show. Stay tuned every time you can and enjoy KKXX. Bye for now. KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. The Trump administration is going to propose regulations to ban all devices like bump stocks used in last year's Las Vegas massacre. President Trump says he's taking action as a follow-up to the Las Vegas shooting deaths of 58 people last October. I signed a memorandum directing the Attorney General to propose regulations to ban all devices that turn legal weapons into machine guns. He made the announcement to curb the use of the rapid-fire devices during a ceremony recognizing bravery by the nation's public safety officers. Greg Clygston The White House. KKXX, Paradise. K280GL, Chico. And K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. The White House was briefly in lockdown this afternoon after a car hit a security barrier near the complex. Correspondent Linda Kenyon has the details. The Secret Service says the female driver of the vehicle was quickly apprehended after her car struck but did not breach the security barrier. It happened at a corner near Pennsylvania Avenue just moments after President Donald Trump had wrapped up a press conference with the Australian prime minister. No shots were fired during the incident. No law enforcement personnel were injured. President Trump's former campaign chairman is maintaining his innocence after his longtime business associate pleaded guilty to federal charges. Paul Manafort says in a statement that the plea by Rick Gates on Friday does not change his commitment to defend himself against what he called untrue piled up charges. Manafort said he had hoped.